Amen. Ian, thanks so much for that gracious, gracious introduction. Hi, everybody. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Alfredo. I'm a uh, second-year seminary student, dual degree. And um, it's nice to be able to be part of a community where we can practice um, and be encouraged in this gifting. I'm not super used to a lot of sermons. Um, I do like giving them, but... Uh, Noticed some rust here and there, but um, I, I am glad to have this opportunity. So I was asked to speak on community and mission. For those of you guys that might be um, new uh, or just dropping in, uh, we're doing a series on the mission of God. And the subtitle of that is called Explosions of Joy. The heart behind that is sometimes this idea of mission within churches may have gotten, um, sometimes it gets congested. Sometimes it uh, maybe leans too hard in one direction where um, things can be stifled because maybe there's too much coercion. Maybe um, things got complicated in terms of what we understand is evangelism. And so the subtitle, Explosions of Joy, the heart behind it, um, Ian's heart behind it is to just to approach it with fresh eyes and be like, hey, it's supposed to be. Within God, there are purposes that he has, and those purposes move him to mission, and those purposes are absolutely just abounding joy that overflows. And so that's the idea. Um, and so today we're going to talk about community and mission. To start off, let's go to a classic, classic text. Um, yeah, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, the word of the Lord. But the 11 disciples, well, I'll give you some context. This is at the end of um, four stories about Jesus' life. And this is the closing remarks of one of those stories. Jesus has lived his life, he's given his life, um, died, rose again. And now he's meeting again with his disciples and he has some closing remarks for them. But the 11 disciples, there was 12 and there was a tragedy lost one along the way, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. I love how worship and doubt is right there in the same space. Um, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, depending on how much time you've been um, in church or church culture, um, this is one of those texts that so many preachers keep coming back to again and again and again. It's also one of those texts for me that I keep coming back to again and again and again. And the reason is because I think there's so much, there's so many layers. This is so dense. There's so much packed into this passage. It reminds me kind of um, of in Genesis where there's the stories of creation and Adam and Eve. I, I'm so fascinated by how many sermons can keep coming back to that same passage and they're always pulling out new things, right? And so this is one of those passages for me. I don't think I'll say things that are very new. I think I might emphasize a thing here and there that might be new, that might shine, you know, a different um, hue 
on some understandings. And I may, depending on what you've been exposed to, I may say something that is new. I may even say something that might be a smidge uncomfortable. Um, but hopefully I can tread carefully. Um, so yeah, okay, this is Jesus. And this is his classic statement and his final words that give us what we have come to call the Great Commission. So it seems fitting. If we're talking about community and mission, why not go to this passage? This is my passage of choice. I want to emphasize a few things and then um, offer a challenge, some practical points for challenge for our community. So first, Jesus says, go off and make disciples. And I love this. This particular concept has really captivated me. And I have found a lot of when I, when I try to think of, hey, how am I going to be obedient to Jesus? What do I dedicate my life to? This idea of making disciples is one of those that's really, really taken all of me. And so this idea of make disciples is within the Jewish culture, there were um, the revered teachers would eventually take on students and the students that they took on, they would call them disciples. And so some of the best language we have for that in um Today is like apprentice. And some people, though, would argue that most of the words we have don't quite capture what Jesus was trying to do with this idea of disciples. So even apprentice, even students, they're great, but they don't quite capture everything that was going on for Jesus. As a matter of fact, I'd even say that disciples, the Jewish, Jewish culture understood hey, when our most respected people take on students, they understood what a disciple was, but I would argue Jesus even transforms what the Jewish culture understood about discipleship. I think Jesus cranks everything up a notch. And at some point, it'd be great to share a sermon on that. But regardless, my first statements are this. The church has been called, believers in Jesus have been called to make these disciples. Discipleship is wonderful, and at the same time, it raises some interesting challenges that I think the church needs to reflect on. Such is the case that today, I think we can have a form of church. You can have it nice and tight, this way of doing church, this way of doing the Jesus thing, and you can go for years within that same mode, upholding that same system, and actually never make disciples. People can attend a form of church and they themselves may never learn how they are to make disciples. If I were to ask the question today, I'm not going to do this, but I just want us to imagine because I think it'll um, have some effect. If I were to ask people here to raise their hands, um, if, if I were to ask this question, raise your hand, don't do it. I'm just Raise your hand if you would say right now that you yourself know how to make a disciple. I wonder how many of those hands, how many of our hands would go up. And particularly believers that have been in the church and have, have said, hey, I want to follow Jesus. Sometimes believers three, five years, ten years, two decades in. You'd be surprised if you gathered a bunch of believers that, that have that much time within the faith. If you were to ask that question, raise your hand if you could say with confidence, you know how to make a disciple. It, it's kind of a, an astonishing thing that not every hand will go up. Um, 
I have a, some of my theological training has been in this organization called Youth with a Mission. And one of their entry level schools is literally called Discipleship Training School. And one of the church plants that I helped out with back home, or at the church plant, it's not like I've helped in a lot of church plants, the church plant that I've helped out um, back home, many of us trained in this organization called Youth with a Mission, and their entry-level school was Discipleship Training School. When we went through their training, one of the awe fa factors of this organization is they are so good at discipleship that in a short amount of time, you will see people learn how to have a thriving relationship with God that I would say merits the title disciple. That is the disciple. People change, people transform. And it's astounding so much so, one of the bad things is that we would start, we, some of us would go to these trainings and we would feel like, Okay, YWAM, that, that's the name of the organization. YWAM's doing it right, the church is doing it wrong. And they wouldn't necessarily tell us, hey, like we're doing, you know, they wouldn't like preach it from their, I don't know, their pulpits or whatever. But somehow that would grow inside of us. And that, that was a bad thing. Some of us came to be aware of it. Um, and we try to keep ourselves in check. But I say that, I guess, just to articulate that we saw some pretty effective forms Many of us left YWAM because we felt God wanted to realize that type of training, that type of transformation in the local church. So here I find myself um, in this church plant, and we had gone through a lot. Our founding um, overseeing pastors, they had to step down due to just some things that were happening in their family. And we inherited um, kind of almost like a, a, a limping congregation. There were some things that lacked traction. Sometimes it didn't feel like we knew where we were going. Eventually we felt, hey, we need to simplify. We need to stop all this stuff. It felt like there was just so much noise. When we try to simplify, hey, let's get back to just the basics of what it was that Jesus called us to do. This passage was huge to help us refine our attention, refine our focus. And that particular concept of making disciples was huge. So we're like, okay, we're going to make disciples. Some of us felt like we had already started to do that kind of thing. But because of all these twists and turns and highs and lows that we had been through, we just came back. And I remember, it's crazy, man, that this question hadn't necessarily been asked in this way. But we were just kind of sobered by everything. And the question at one of our ministry team meetings was, hey, who here among us really knows how to make a disciple? Mind you, the people, that, the people that were in that room, if you were to plug them into any congregation, these people would shine. These people would be blessings. These are the people that would be leading music. These are the people that would be setting up chairs. These are the people that are going to um, be praying. These are the people that you would, you would look at them and they would, their lives would just stand out like, wow, they have a thriving, growing relationship with God. I'm in a room full of these wonderful, awesome people. And when the question is posed, hey, which, who here really knows how to make a disciple? We were drawing blanks. Some people could say, yeah, I kind of know, and I kind of could figure it out, but actually I've been taking these people through what I thought it would be, and we've hit peaks. I don't know where to go from here. And I was so, I think to a certain extent, proud of the authenticity, the transparency, but I wonder today if we were to take inventory here among us, especially um, believers that have been in the faith for a while, would you say you know how to make a disciple? I wonder if all of us would be, you know, raise our hands. So this is a challenge, and this is something as a ministry team, I love that, that with Ian and some others, we've been at this. We're trying to figure this out. We're trying to sort through this. <clears throat> all that to say, it is crucial that we learn how to do that. And in this passage, I think Jesus has kind of given us 
a little bit of the strategy, a little bit of the know-how, a little bit of the modality as to how we can approach and do this. And so hopefully this kind of, um, this helps. By, by the way, not to discourage people, I think sometimes people know how to disciple. It's just for whatever reason, they haven't attached that language to it. So it, it can be complicated. You may be ready. You may know how to do that more than you think, right? And yeah, so uh, next. So he says, make disciples. And here's where I want to get a little bit to the strategy of the mission. He says, baptizing them. This word baptizing sometimes can get congested in a lot of uh, church lingo. So I kind of, I want to freshen it up and just go back to the main concept behind baptism. When Jesus says baptize them, I think absolutely he means there's a church ordinance. There's a sacrament. There's something official that we're supposed to do where we take a person and we immerse them in water and then they are therefore part of the church, part of the community. They've given their life to Jesus. Absolutely. This physical act. I want to kind of pull back and just um, take the essence of what's behind this word. And I just want to suggest, let's not use baptism right now. Let's not use that word. Let's just go with immerse or submerge. Okay. Cause that's kind of the original language. That's, that's part of what's, what's going into it. So I'm just going to say, Jesus is asking us to immerse and submerge people. Let's just go with that now as we build, um, yeah, the point that I want to um, move forward. So next, so he says, baptize them. And then he says, in the name of, and once again, in the name can also sometimes get congested with um, religious lingo. So I want to just suggest that in those days, if you were to do something in the name of someone, it meant you were going to do it in the manner of, or in the style of, according to the way of that particular system, that particular, I don't know, ethos or that particular pattern, right? So if somebody were to say, if you were to meet me on the soccer field and I said, I am about to play in the, in the name of Messi, then you would expect a particular type of soccer from me, which I cannot always produce, but here and there I have some moments. So it just means in the style of, in the manner of, according to, okay? So baptize, let's strip it down just to submerge them. And in the name, it's like submerge them according to this manner or in this particular way, okay? Next, it says submerge them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Growing up, if I heard these statements, what came to my mind for some reason is you would just verbalize Father, Son, and Spirit, and then you had accomplished this, right? So if somebody was getting baptized, that you submerge them in water, you pull them out, and you say, or you say in the name of Jesus, you dunk them in water, you pull them out, and then you had done it. You had accomplished this, you know, sacred mystical thing. On one dimension, yes. In another dimension, it's been very helpful for me to shake off the familiarity and approach it with different words. So I think what's going on here is Jesus is asking us, hey, immerse and submerge people in the communal, interactive, dynamic relationship of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So whatever it is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, whatever it is that's happening within them, immerse them into that. And I would even say that when that happens, when somebody spiritually is immersed in the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, then that spiritual reality is best um, stamped and solidified by the physical act of 
actually dunking somebody in water, bringing them up, and then saying, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, but I just want to say that this is a spiritual reality. I think Jesus is saying, hey, there's a relationship. There's a reality. There's something real here. And if we're going to go off and make disciples, you got to be able to somehow bring them into whatever it is Father, Son, and Spirit are sharing. Which, mind you, even just in this room, I think there's plenty of people that can articulate something about what we've come to know about Father, Son, and Spirit, right? If I were to ask, hey, toss out some characteristics of the Trinity. Actually, I'm just going to go ahead and do it for, yeah, because that's exciting. I love interacting with people. And so, um, yeah. There's something about the life Father, Son, and Spirit share. Jesus wants to immerse us, uh, immerse us, but he wants us to also immerse people in that I want to take from the congregation and the audience here, what do we know about the life? What, what is it like? What is the thing that Father, Son, and Spirit share? What, how would you describe? Whatever it is they share, however it is they live, however it is they operate, what do you know about it? Can we get some input? Um, and please, I, I, uh, I want to, yeah, I encourage you, feel comfortable. Um, don't feel like we're going to judge you or anything for your responses. This is... Um, Safe, safe space. So can anybody, yes, Gene. Unity. Gene says there's unity. Yes, Craig. Mist, oh, unity and mystery. I love it. Oh, collaborative. Okay, working together. Mystery. We can't solve everything. Unity. It's all together. Yes. Say it again. Preference. Oh, unpack that a little for me. Oh, wow. Ooh, I love it. So people within the Trinity are giving, are are so inclined to one another that it's almost like they think of themselves first. In in a sense, that's beautiful. That's precious. Yeah. In relationships, are you, um, um, how wonderful it is for somebody to give you preference, right? How wonderful it is when you experience a type of unity. How wonderful it is when you're caught up in something that's real and at the same time mysterious. Like it's beyond everything you can grasp or understand. And what was it that you had said? How wonderful it is to be in relationships where there is collaboration, right? I want to take some more because this is good. And this is actually the best way I flow is if I get stuff from the congregation or the people. Eternal community, unending, absolutely. Oof, how precious it would be um, to be part of a community where you know this thing is going to last forever. Oh, that's good. That gave me chills. Oh, man. To, oh. See, the, the, this is what, you know, when, when people um, interact like this. My sisters, at some point, they were believers. Now they're not believers. They, it's been hard, you know, because when, when, when they came to believe, they were so on fire. And then the reasons for which they stopped being in the faith was just so almost crippling, I'd say, for me. But recently, praise God, they're coming back little by little. And as they come back, they ask questions. And it's cool because they come back and they're asking questions. And sometimes they're sidestepping the religious lingo. And so one of the things they've asked is like, Fredo, sometimes 
I just have a hard time with this, like, forever. Why? How? Like, life is hard. I don't know sometimes, man, my older sister, she's like, I don't know, not old. She's the oldest of my two younger. She says, I don't know if I want this to go on forever. She's talking about a really tough relationship. I remember in that space, being able to articulate something like what you said, Annalie, is in that moment to speak of something that would be so good that you would want it to last forever, right? I think when scriptures talk about eternal life, it's not just life that will last forever, but it's life that is so good that it will last forever because of the quality of it, right? Oh, I love it. Anybody else want to toss something on there? Yes. Ooh, the dance. Oh, there's so much there. Do you want to share a bit more? I mean, I can, yeah, please. What do you mean the dance? Yes, that's awesome. That's gorgeous. I love it. So this idea that you can have community, you can have unity, but what happens when there's so much of that that it's almost like um, it transcends just staticness. It transcends just even, uh, I don't know, there's something transcendent. When you say dance, it's like it's community plus something else, right? It's, it, it is artistic. So I love that. Okay. All that to say, Father, Son, and the Spirit, they share all these things. And Jesus is saying, if we're going to make disciples, you got to know how to immerse people in that kind of life. So it's not just saying words. It's lived experience of this type. Um, next. Oh, yes, there is so much mystery. There is so much that goes on into um, Father, Son, and Spirit that one of the things I want to pull out that is both mysterious and simple, and I want to be careful with this because some people may, could hear this and it could be problematic, but I think it's okay. And which is why I have massive quotations. Like I'm being very careful. I'm approaching fear and trembling. Father, I don't want to say anything that's... Um, but I want to propose that in all of these wonderful things that we've mentioned... I don't know that they would exist if God within himself didn't have some measure of plurality. All of the ways we've experienced those wonderful things, and I would even say all the best things we've experienced in life, have to do with another person. And I think it's because fundamentally, if God is the bedrock of reality, right, the essence, the most important part, Everything we know that is good, that has another, is absolutely because within God there is otherness as well. Okay, so we have this concept of the Trinity, and within that, for my purposes today, I want to toss the statement ever so carefully on the table and say, one of the mysterious and beautiful things is that God is a small group. And I hope that this word of small group doesn't, it's not as eloquent or mysterious, but I think it's so practical that it's worth saying. That, that idea right there, I hope to do some work on in the future. And I'm just poking at it right now. God is a small group. There's three of them. There's not 10, there's not 20, there's not 100. There's three persons all within one being. And this is one of the mysteries of the Trinity. And it's one of the staple doctrines, right, of the church 
And small group can be a little, um, I don't know, that can be up for debate. That language might not be preferred depending on, you know, um, where you are or how you, how you hold doctrine. But regardless, you know, maybe we could say God somehow experiences, quote-unquote, some measure of community within himself. And so let me say this. If God currently, and I think this is the absolutely the assumption, God currently is experiencing the best kind of life that is possible. And that best kind of life is realized through community and a community of few entities. Okay, so the highest mode of existence can be accessed through few in that kind of setting. That's so. Um, next, uh, yeah, next. So I want to suggest maybe if when we read or as we consider the Great Commission how Jesus is telling us, hey, this is how you should approach mission. I wonder maybe if we just switch the words up a little bit to give us fresh perspective, if we could say something like this. God is saying, immerse them according to the way of this Trinitarian reality. Or let me say, learn how to submerge them in the life and the manner of existence of capital T, the community. Or immerse them, submerge them, in the lifestyle according to the existence of, capital T, the small group, right? So here at Ecclesia, um, next. Oh, sorry, I have two more points before, <laughs> two more points. One, what I love is if we look at Jesus's life, this was his focus. I love how Jesus, he put so much hope on a small group. He had 12 followers. And for his whole life, you see him invest so much into these 12. Yes, I'm, I'm going to, for the sake of my argument, I want to contrast, I want to say 12 is small group, and I'm going to use anything beyond that, I'm going to use as a large gathering, is, is, is how I'm going to call it. Jesus was part of large gatherings. There was times, there was crowds, there was multitudes, there's a lot of people that could, Jesus was a Jew and he would go to the synagogue where there was probably more than 12 people. Absolutely, Jesus was part of that. But the gospels and the stories that we have about his life, they don't show that he puts all his hope in that size of gathering. He doesn't reject it. He doesn't deny it. But most of his attention is on a small group. Okay, I love that. I think sometimes in the West, and particularly in the United States, I think sometimes we go backwards with where we put our, our attention and our hope. One of the things I've noticed, I don't know how true it is here, but in my sample, which is a limited sample, my sample of experience in churches is that we will operate and the main gathering we will invest so much time and attention into is actually a large gathering. And small groups tend to be like an add-on. They're secondary. They're almost a luxury. And the non-negotiable is a large gathering. And the small group is like, maybe, yes, for some believers, it's okay if they go, right? But when, and, and even some people, some of my friends who talk about like coming, giving their life to God, for them, it almost means the same thing as just starting to attend a large gathering. And the small group is, oh, after I give my life to God, after I partake of this life, maybe eventually I'll add in the small gathering. I say all that because if, if you really examine that, I think we're upside down and backwards. If you look at Jesus's pace, if you look, look at Jesus's energy, his time, his investment, his hope, it was first and foremost on a small group. 
you look at the concept of church compared to the way society was unraveling and um, developing around him, man, it stands out. Church was actually small communities and that contrasted, you know, other, other movements that were happening around. So mind you, I know what it's like to maybe take this idea of small group and go lean so hard into that direction that people then start to like um, label large gatherings as bad. And I don't want to do that. This is good. The fact that we show up like this is wonderful. It's awesome. May this be everything it needs to be. But woe to us. Woe to us if we're so okay with this that we neglect the small. Woe to us is somehow we've developed this understanding of Christianity and religion to where this, attending a gathering like this, will check off a box, right? Will appease our conscience and we will never risk the wild adventure, right? Pay the cost of small group. Small group has some costs. Small group has some sacrifice. Small group has some risks. It's another thing, right? It's another thing to go small group. So, my challenge, I think my heart is, I think this needs to be central, especially when it comes to mission. And we need to learn how to balance this small with the large. But we see Jesus' attention going in this direction. Um, next, I think not only does Jesus gather a group of 12, but I haven't done this, but as I was prepping for the message, I think it'd be exciting just to look at also how are these disciples caught up within Jesus' relationship with the Father and the Spirit? I wonder if sometimes, whether it's they're on a boat and there's a storm, whether it's like, man, there's these crazy um, healings and miracles and this, you know, this exorcisms that are happening and Jesus's life is being threatened. And I wonder if in the middle of all that, I can only imagine that if I was following Jesus, I wonder when it seems like Jesus should be freaking out, he's asleep. When it seems like, hey, Jesus, this is super serious. We need to get out of here. He's like so calm, composed, and collected. I wonder, right, if when they saw Jesus praying, when they saw Jesus um, going off to be by himself, when they heard Jesus talk, I wonder if the disciples, to what extent the disciples were immersed, like, man, we're caught up in the middle of something, and we quite don't know what to call it, but it's wonderful. Right? And it's affecting them. As a matter of fact, I think that statement that we saw where um, Matthew says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that a statement like that, where you get those three um, named in that manner, that's really rare in the Gospels. And, and I wonder if maybe it's because, yes, they lived it, but it was later on that they were able to articulate it and pen it down and say, what, what did we experience? So, Jesus is not only focused on gathering small groups, but also, I also feel Jesus lived in such a way that he invited people into the small group that was his relationship with God. Next. So some points of practice. I want to, hopefully these things, uh, my, you know, if I was effective in any way, hopefully now there's a setup for us to encourage what we're doing here at Ecclesia. At Ecclesia, I think the realization is, has been here from the beginning is we need to steward the small. We have to. And so community groups have been part of that. And now it's exciting because there's a new, fresh wave of momentum and energy to where 
we get to almost go into this new era of community groups. And mind you, I am so, I, I'm so, so proud and so grateful that we were, we were in a meeting, a ministry team meeting, and um, the people that are organizing the community groups, Brenda and, and Ian, they said we had a good problem. They said when we asked, hey, who will facilitate um, a small group or, or a community group? We had more people, like too many people was the thing. Like as a matter of fact, we have more people than we, uh, I don't know how to say it. It was a problem, quote unquote, but a good problem that we had this ministry. That, that doesn't, I don't know to what extent that happens. I'm not f- familiar with the studies and the statistics, but that's awesome that here there are people that understand this and know it. Hey, if we're going to take the Jesus way seriously, we have to organize and master the art of the small gathering. And to have more people than we knew what to do with, that's awesome. So my challenge is, I, when it comes to community groups, this is our mission. Our mission is that we would learn how to host, but also immerse um, people in this experience within God. And it has to do, if, if we're going to approximate anything of the Trinity and God's own existence, I think it means we too have to learn how to be great at small communities. There is this um, school, and I love the, the way they put it. Right now it's the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. It used to be called the Mars Hill Graduate, Mars Hill Graduate School. But I, I remember their phrase or their slogan for their school really caught my attention. They said, theology is only as um, alive as it is lived in community. And that stuck with me. It did a number on me, but I love that. Theology, if theology is the study of God, also you could also say the study of a community, the community. There's no way to study of community and for that to be of any significance if you yourself are not, don't have hands-on in communal experience, right? So let me rephrase it. The study of the small group um, is most alive when you as well are harnessing small group type experiences. So um, community groups, we're starting those. I want to encourage you guys. That's part of our mission. Yes, let's move in that direction. Next. Um, also, we're reading this book and I, I, I love it. There's, um, when, when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to mission, there's so many things that can be said. There's so many models out there. I really appreciate one of the books that Ian has presented to us um, and as a ministry team that we read. The author, Mike Breen, says that out of all the models and things you could use, if it doesn't have this texture, if it does not have the texture of family, he's, in his experience, things don't work. So we have community groups. We're going to try some systems. We're going to organize ourselves. My challenge here, though, is that if we don't have the texture of family, which, by the way, in the Trinity, everything that we said that we can ever articulate about what the Trinity shares, it's absolutely the essence of family. If our community groups don't have the texture of family, it's a no-go. I mean, close shop because it's not going to work. And as a matter of fact, there's churches that'll do community, they'll do small groups and they don't work. There's people, I've noticed there's even some people that when you say the word small group, there's actually distaste. Like, yeah, I tried that. And, and, and it didn't work. Yeah, there's got to be a different way because small groups, they didn't work. I think sometimes that happens because we may not have achieved this texture. So my challenge is if you're hosting a community group or if you're going to a community group, 
may your heart be motivated to have the texture of family. The other thing I'll mention this point, and then I'll fill in the middle area. I love that Mike Breen also, the same book, same guy. The book, by the way, is called uh, Building a Discipling Culture. I love that it, what he says, hey, when you immerse people, and he's basically saying some of these same things. We need to bring people into um, transforming relationships. When you immerse them, you can teach something like from the pulpit. You can give them content. And so people will be taught that way, but people also are transformed and they gain understanding and knowledge by what they catch, right? And in teacher lingo, it's like some things are taught, some things are caught. So he's saying, at church here, we teach things from the pulpit, but also we're teaching things that you guys catch that we might not be, be, be speaking in words. Um, and regarding the stuff that's just caught or absor- absorbed, Mike Breen says that the, the, the stuff that people will catch is the stuff that a particular community is fluent in. If there is no fluency, it won't stick. So... For us, it's we want to immerse people in things, but we need to be fluent if the immersion is going to be effective. Okay, so the challenge is, are we fluent in the vibe, the mode, the essence of family? Jesus absolutely was. This is why his believers, one of the choice metaphors for what a church was, household of God the family of God. How do they refer to one another? Brother and sister. Because this, Jesus was fluent in this, so it stuck, right? So the family fluency, and I'd say, you know, all these other things, everything, I, you know, when I sat down and I asked, okay, what do I see within the Trinity? Here's some things that came to the top of my list, but we could add everything you guys mentioned today. I see within the Trinity vulnerability. I see that they absolutely take the risk to disclose themselves in super, super intense ways, right? Raw, naked, unfiltered connection. Vulnerability. May the Trinity serve as a model for our small groups to be places that are beautifully vulnerable. Also, there's intimacy, there's commitment, there's hospitality. The only one I want to make any um, comments on is commitment. I think it was um, in some of the comments you guys shared, I think within the Trinity, um, this idea of preferring someone else to me also is tied with commitment. Within the Trinity, we see commitment like we've never seen and we will never ever see before. They are endlessly, um, unflinchingly committed to one another. It's so solid that it holds all of reality together. Their commitment for one another is literally holding our existence together. Oh, that such commitment would motivate our commitment to our small groups. Heads up, if you start to treat the small group as secondary, I don't know that you'll realize Trinitarian life. And it will only be an add-on. And we will only maybe even be in danger of playing church. Community groups, I think, is a wonderful place where you can learn to experience the life within God that is fleshed out in commitment. May we learn what it means like to model Trinitarian commitment to our small groups. That's a tall order. But if we're not moving in that direction, we're only playing church. And if the the community group that moves in that direction, trust me, there will be transformation. Trust me, people who visit will be like, man, there's something here. 
that is absolutely heaven-like, right? Commitment's huge. And so I want to challenge us also as we move in community groups, be committed. And, and any other virtue you can pull out of the Trinity, my challenge is, are you showing up to your community group excited and eager to receive that, but also to give it, right? Um, next, and lastly, I think there's also, um, within the Trinity, we see this sacrifice of immersion. Whatever Jesus did to include us had everything to do with sacrifice. Something had to be paid. Blood was spilt. It was not easy. As we move to try to create this type of modality, as we move in mission for small groups, um, there's some sacrifice. Immersion just doesn't happen. We're going to need to give some things up, right? And here in Princeton, and I've been here um, a year, and at the top of the list, one of the things that we're going to need to give up, and it's hard, I know, because this is such, um, such a treasure to people here. It's time. I come from New Mexico. Back there is land of manana. We're late to everything, right? Here it's minute to minute to minute. And I know what it's like. I mean, just last week, this um, student wanted something from me. And I remember it was going to take like a minute or two. But I remember feeling so, um, how would you say, I just didn't want to give it. Like, I've learned what a minute is worth here. And it's like, I don't want to give it. And yes, I went back to my room. Yes, I prayed. And I'm praying like, Father, help me to be open, you know, to those relationships and not help me to pay the sacrifice for that kind of thing. And so anyways, it's going to be, uh, it's going to require some sacrifice, but I think we're up, we're up for it. We're up to the task. So um, as we move to the table, I can invite the musicians to come forward. Jesus in his life so wonderfully displayed this immersion, this baptizing. And he left us some symbols that, um, that are supposed to remind us of exactly how he accomplished this. So right now as we respond to um, what God may be impressing on our hearts, we, in a sense, renew our vows. And these elements are ways we say yes to God. And hopefully as we take these and as, um, through song and through reflection, hopefully we can um, say yes to God. J Jesus, you immersed, and yes, we will immerse as well. We will not only let ourselves be immersed, but we will join you and the immersion and the mission that you have for us. So Father, we remember, take these elements. We ask that you would um, yeah, move in the meditation of our heart. Malvika will give you um, a cue of when you can come up. <clears throat>